You're listening to Design Talk, a podcast for conversations connecting design with theory, organizations, business, and impact. I'm Alan Higgins. And I'm Dagwan Conley-Bree. And we're really excited to have Carl McCabe join us today to talk about what he's learned over the years developing web-scale software. Carl is a UCD computer science graduate with a career spanning startups and tech giants, Amazon and Meta. I first met Carl in Iona Technologies. You might not have heard about it, but I'll call it one of Ireland's first high-tech unicorns before unicorns were a thing. So, Carl, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Well, I dispute the unicorn thing, actually, for starters. <laughs> they never quite got that big. Very small unicorn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yes, that's right. Me and Alan work together in Iona Technologies. Um, so I'll just give a quick introduction to kind of me and what I've been doing. So I graduated from UCD in 1990, which is a long time ago. Uh, I feel very old here today, but uh, it's great to be back. Um, I, my first job, I was a C++ engineer in a company called ICL, which doesn't exist anymore, uh, building X-Windows graphics toolkits. I uh, did that for about four or five years, and then I joined Iona Technologies, where I met Alan. Um, Iona was, yeah, I was employee number 15 in Iona, and was with them until they were about 6,000 people in size, so I saw them grow. It was a total roller coaster. I was there when they floated on the NASDAQ. It was a super exciting time in the Irish industry. They were the first Irish company to do anything like that. It was really exciting. Met lots of good friends, met lots of uh, future colleagues, met my wife there, in fact. Uh, it was a good time. Um, after that, I did a startup. I was a CTO in a startup called Rococo Software, where for about five years we built a Java Bluetooth uh, software stack. We sold it to um, handset manufacturers and to uh, virtual machine vendors. Our software was in 180 million handsets around the world, which was a, a cool claim to fame, but we didn't really make any money out of it. <laughs> we learned that small startups can't really charge a per-device model to uh, to some of these large handset manufacturers, but it was good. Um, we, we I think we employed about 25 people at its peak, and I learned a lot doing that. Then I joined Amazon in 2005. Um, I, I was with them for 12 years. I joined before AWS existed, before Kendall was a thing. They were still just a retail company. Um, what I did for them, so initially I, I, I was a, a manager that ran the team that built the software stack that does personalized merchandising on the website. So when you go to the website and you see customers who viewed this ultimately went on to buy that and other similar personalized content, uh, our platform um, basically figured out what to show you to try and get you to buy stuff, uh, which was exciting. Uh, I did that. Then I was, I, I was the head of application security for Amazon's retail business for about a year and a half, um, which pretty much involved making sure that people building applications within Amazon to, as part of the, the entire retail ecosystem, that they had security in mind, that they protected customer data, credit card data, personal data, et cetera. Um, and then I moved to the networking organization where I ran the network availability engineering group, which uh, built network monitoring software, network fault remediation software, network workflow systems. Basically, we built all of this technology which um, for which there are products in the industry to do, for example, simple network monitoring, but none of that works at Amazon scale. Um, and we tried and failed, so we know. <laughs> uh, we did that uh, did that for about seven years. And then the last five and a half years, I've been with Meta, where I ran the systems lifecycle group, which is responsible for the software that um, manages the lifecycle of servers. So when racks of servers come into the data centers, our software would 
provision them, put an operating system on there, can configure them, get them ready for uh, serving customer uh, traffic. Uh, during the lifecycle of servers, we would you know manage the repair workflow, and then at the end of life, uh, we would uh, decommission the servers, wipe the disks, certify that user data is really gone. Uh, so everything from birth to death of servers. So that's me. Well, I'm glad we got you to tell us about that because there's no way I could have covered any of that. <laughs> Sorry if I stole your thunder. Then. No, not at all, not at all. Um, we were going to title this talk Team Patterns Behind Web Scale Software. Um, I'm not even sure how we ended up with that title because I probably picked words uh, out of your uh, initial abstract. And But look, um, what are some of the common themes you've seen in how large companies like Amazon and Meta develop software? Yeah, so, I mean, I suppose the first thing to say is that there is no one-size-fits-all uh, for these companies, as you might imagine. Um, so even within individual companies, they do things very differently across within a particular organization. And from team to team, there can be massive differences in approach um, to design, testing, uh, deployment, etc. Um, but um, having said that, there are commonalities. I mean, I suppose one big commonality that I saw between Amazon and Meta was kind of the overall arc in terms of how they... Uh, actually, before I get into this, I should say, by the way, um, these are all my opinions. Uh, other people will have different opinions than these. I'm not speaking for either Amazon or Meta here. This is just kind of my own observations on, on, on from what I saw. And, I, and also, um, I wasn't privy to everything that was going across going on across these organi these these companies just the, the 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 parts that I was working in but one th one pattern that I saw though was uh, it was it was very common for the teams to unblock themselves they would they would hit a problem they'd build some software to get unblocked and move fast it was all about moving fast let's just get unblocked build something get the customers using it and move forward to the next thing um did they always build the best thing to get to, to, you know, that was going to scale forever? No, but it got them unblocked and allowed them to move quickly. So if you were to sort of drop into one of these companies, you know, 10 years after they started doing that, you know, as I guess I did, um, you would look at this ecosystem of software services and you think, what the hell, this is crazy. How did they end up with such a, uh, you know, an array of weird services that maybe don't interoperate with each other or that overlap and duplicate each other? So, um, I suppose one one thing it's important to remember if you're if you are dropping into a company like that is that these systems exist for a reason and you, you don't get to architect beautiful software unless you have um, customers who are using it in the first place and you don't get to have customers using it in the first place unless you're building something that people need and you're going fast so that this this idea of being agile and going quickly is actually super important in industry because you need to build something get it in front of people and iterate. Um, and after many years of doing this, you might end up with a, an ecosystem of software that looks kind of weird. But I think it's important to respect it when you come in and sort of understand, take the time to understand why it is the way it is. So in terms of a theme, that's definitely something I saw in, in Amazon. And then when I went to Meta, um, it was quite interesting because it was the same. But, you know, they're sort of a few years behind Amazon in terms of their, their growth curve, if you like. They're, they're a younger company. Uh, and a lot of the same themes were starting to emerge. And then that... A lot of the approaches, which we'll probably talk about later on in this uh, conversation around, you know, design and quality, uh, they start to mature and change as, as you go through. Um, so that's definitely one thing. I mean, I think if you look at the likes of, um, you know, um, if you look at AWS to, to choose Amazon, 
AWS is a set of you know beautiful APIs, nicely architected interfaces and products, and a nice consoles. It seems very, it seems very well put together. It is very well put together, well thought through. Uh, it's a great experience and has been very successful. So you sort of assume that underneath the covers it's the same, that inside the organization, you know, it's well organized and there are clean interfaces and everything works the way you might expect it to work. Uh, but that's not always the case. There's much more entropy, much more chaos sometimes in, in these companies uh, and a lot of legacy that gets built up. And as engineers in these companies, you need to work to kind of get that balance between engineering the future uh, and coping with the past, which is a very tricky balance to get right sometimes. Um, like there's a bit of a myth that used to exist around EC2. I, I'm not sure. I think it's been dispelled to some extent. Um, but certainly in the earlier days of EC2, the myth was that Amazon you know, was super clever because they were monetizing. Uh, they, they were basically using their infrastructure during the quiet periods and renting out compute infrastructure via EC2 to people that wanted to use it. Um, which is not true. The compute infrastructure used for running Amazon retail was not EC2. EC2 was a completely separate network, a separate uh, uh, production environment. They were not. They were. They did not overlap and did not touch each other for years. Uh, internally, EC2 was, you know, perceived by a lot of people, probably including me, who lacked foresight as this wacky kind of project that wasn't going to go anywhere. Um, it was built by a small, scrappy team in South Africa, building. You know the, the, this idea of, of sharing compute um, uh, and selling compute to to uh, renting compute to, to clients, um, and you know that when they needed help from the rest of the organization, they were often sort of batted away. So they needed to, and this is coming back to the question. This is another another theme, I guess. They needed to heal around the organization and actually unblock themselves because they couldn't get the people that that needed to provide them with you know, particular network features, they wouldn't do it. So the EC2 guys just needed to go and build it themselves. So that's an interesting pattern that you see where you know success emerges from unlikely places. And it generally emerges with, by people just doing their own thing. Um, so anyway, fast forward several years. I think EC2 was launched around 2006 or so. Um, you know, When I left in 2017, we're coming towards the end of what's known as what was known internally as the Moz project move to AWS, which is basically moving the entire uh, Amazon retail stack into EC2. Um, so the tail wagged the dog eventually. The production network and the production stack turned out that they became almost irrelevant. I don't want to say irrelevant, but certainly less relevant than what was going on in EC2. And the power of um, you know, building something like EC2, which needs to work for such a broad range of customers, turns out that that you end up with a much better product that's a better fit for uh, for for internal customers. So that's that's another pattern. Um, and then the last thing I would say about this, maybe in terms of themes, is that the the differences are sometimes super interesting between these companies as well. Um, like for example, <clears throat> um, in in Meta. More or less, there's one single, certainly within the infrastructure organization, there's one single source code repository, uh, which is very different than the way Amazon do things. So you, you can jump in and make changes to code and um, anybody's code. <laughs> uh, now, obviously, there are controls around getting that tested and, and shipped, but um, it, there's a very different culture around access to code, for example, between the companies. The companies are different in terms of their the, how engineer driven they are. They're both very strongly engineering companies with an engineering 
purpose-driven culture. But in Amazon, not much more top-down sort of command and control management styles that happen where people are kind of, you know, are more likely to be told what to do and to be pulled in a particular direction. In Meta, it's very engineer-driven and engineers have a huge and maybe surprising amount of autonomy and power to, to build things that they feel need to get built within their space. So that's sort of interesting. Um, I have more I could say about that, but maybe I'll... It'll come up in the conversation, yeah. perhaps. You, you mentioned that you joined Amazon a little before AWS became a thing. I'd be interested to know to what extent how software was developed, changed over your time in Amazon and Meta. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, obviously, in the industry generally, the cloud arrived with AWS, more or less. Um, that radically changed um, how software was developed, I think, in the industry. Um, and for better and for worse, I think, you know, it took a lot of the, I mean, there was a phrase used internally at Amazon, it may have been used externally in the early days of AWS, which was that AWS was all about taking the muck out. It was a clunky phrase, but basically what they meant was all the difficult stuff that you normally had to do when you were building a system before, you know, configuration and figuring out how to, how to get the server, keep the server secure and how to, you know, kind of spin up instances and how to, um, do all the, the infrastructural things that are not about writing your software. Uh, Amazon made that go away with AWS. So that's obviously a good thing because it allowed people to focus on the business problem that they were trying to solve with their software. On the other hand, there were some bad things about that. You know, certainly as somebody who was hiring over the years, my experience was that a lot of candidates, they, they knew how to build stuff in the cloud, but they didn't really understand what was happening beneath the APIs. They, were, they lacked some of those primitive knowledge about primitive operating systems and networking that are still important to understand, you know, even as the, the stack gets layered higher and higher. Um, so there's pros and cons, I think, to that. Um, yeah, what else changed? I mean, it was one interesting journey that we went on in my time at Amazon was we, like, we didn't use, within the networking team, we didn't really use AWS products to build our systems. Um, mostly because we were trying to avoid circular dependencies. So if you're building a network monitoring system to detect um, difficult to pinpoint failures in a massively complex network, um, you want that to work even if there's a network outage that has compromised EC2 or S3, etc. So, um, so we were, I mean, I, I suppose maybe in a way I wasn't, um, I'm not best placed to answer that because I was in this 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 corner of the company where uh, we didn't use a lot of that cloud stuff because we were sort of scared of it, uh, of that circular dependency. We actually moved away from that um, paranoia uh, eventually. And it was the right thing to do in the early days because, you know, there were some massive, huge outages in, in AWS, which uh, were, you know, quite publicly um, known and impactful and, you know, brought down Netflix and everybody else who was running their business on, on, on AWS. Um, but over the years, the reliability uh, and the, the kind of the the, um, the failure models that they used in terms of availability zones and regional failover meant that it was much like the cost for us uh, to build all of the the muck, as I described it earlier on. The cost of actually doing all of that work uh, outweighed the benefits we were getting from protecting ourselves from outages. So that was sort of interesting. So I guess in, eventually we did experience that journey that our customers went on, which is, oh, now we can stop worrying about all of this low-level stuff and we can build um, 
build uh, solutions that that you know focus on the business problem at hand. Um, yeah, that's probably that's probably the biggest one. Um, yeah, okay. Um, I've got a question here that uh, can only be answered a yes, but uh, I know it's a bit more nuanced than that. Did they design their software with quality in mind from the outset? And I'm reminded also of um, software that was designed and fully tested, but uh, would have been tested in little pockets and isolated. So people always design with quality in mind, surely. Sure, yeah. Uh, I'm going to answer no, just because you tell me I couldn't. <laughs> um, you know what? Yeah, I mean, the yes, but is the answer to this one, as you might expect. Um, yeah, I think, it, it, like, designing for quality, this kind of relates to what I talked about earlier on about designing for speed or building for, for speed. That The speed is often nearly more important. Um, and I think that um, it's not necessarily in the DNA of these companies or certainly in the earlier phases of these companies to, to really go hard and deep on design for quality upfront and like heavyweight designs and, and code reviews, uh, sorry, design reviews and um, all of the things that you might expect to go around that and like detailed requirements analysis. A lot of that didn't really happen in my experience. Um, a lot of it was about understanding the requirements um, quickly, designing something carefully, but designing it in a way that you could get it built, um, you know, pretty quickly. Um, that's uh, that. That's one of the big things that changes, though, as the as the companies scale up, because you get to the point where the weight of what you've built in the past is starting to slow you down. It's dragging you down. The friction that that is there that's, that can stop you from innovating and becomes a drag on your innovation because you're of all the care and feeding that's required in terms of um, you know. Uh, fixing problems with the software that's gone before or trying to build integration and glue to connect all of this software together. Um, so then what happens, in my experience, is that there's a much more emphasis on design rigor, and I suppose architectural rigor, as the companies evolve. Um, so it, it becomes much more necessary to think about, you know, if you're building a system, how does this system fit into the overall ecosystem? How does the... Um, you know, how does the, the 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 problem that you're solving? How is that addressed by existing pieces? Can you reuse those pieces or not? Um, so, you know, like one interesting thing that came up a lot was the problem of discovery was huge because there were so many software engineers in in Amazon across the entire globe building all this cool software. How did you discover what they were building such that you could maybe leverage it for for your problem? Um, so, you know, you end up with situations where if you need a workflow system, turns out there's 20 of those that people have built specifically for the problem that they had at hand. And, and maybe nobody or very few people thought about how to s step back and abstract a good workflow architecture from each of these systems or, or maybe a small number that are suitable for uh, the, the class of problems that you're trying to solve. So that kind of stepping back happens, happens a lot uh, in, in, I suppose, in the last kind of maybe, well, in my experience, uh, certainly the last um, seven or eight years uh, in Amazon, and that's happening now in Meta as well. Um, and then there are drivers for this, you know, like for example, uh, reliability is a big one. Um, so quality, reliability, I mean, certainly companies like uh, AWS would be very much um, building software that's reliable for their customers. That's really what it's about. Um, people ended up using the stack in ways that they didn't necessarily expect. 
originally. Uh, when I was there, one of our big customers was Twilio, who some of you may have heard of, a cloud communications company. Um, and they built, um, they essentially built uh, an ISP, a, a network on top of the Amazon network, which was never intended to be a telco, but they effectively built a telco on top of this network. And that drove all sorts of interesting uh, reliability requirements that we needed to meet for the, this and similar customers. Um, and that becomes the driver. How do you make this thing reliable and bulletproof so that so that these customers um, can use it? So what we found then was we would, you know, things like checklists. I remember there was somebody senior in Amazon who was a big believer in, there's a book called The Checklist Manifesto, which I never read, but uh, the, 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 I think the, the premise is that checklists can be a very important tool for controlling for human fallibility in very complex systems. And the, the example they use is around, you know, flying planes and pilots and they use checklists for a reason because yes you know what you're doing but people are fallible so checklists um, became a, an important part of the way Amazon did business uh, we had for example operational uh, what were they called operational reliability no operational readiness reviews or um, and these were uh, there was a, a structure and a template that uh, was used to review a service as to whether it was ready for operational use could it go into into production as an Amazon system. Um, and you know, that's kind of the natural evolution of where you start at as, as an engineer, you build, you build a piece of software and you, okay, hopefully you test it and you deploy it and it seems like it's good, it works. Um, but then, you know, is it, is it ready? Well, you know, does it have a dashboard that you can you look at to see whether it's healthy? Does it have alarming? Is it the right type of alarming? Um, how, how do you know it's gonna scale? Imagine your, your service is super successful and you know, you're going to 100x the traffic tomorrow. How, how are you going to scale that? And what if it fails? What if it um, um, falls over in one particular region? What's your failover strategy? So there's a whole bunch of stuff, questions, just prompting questions that were part of this uh, readiness review, which basically were used to kind of mature the approach to building quality software. And Meta do are doing the same thing now. They, they have what they call reliability engineering which is now a function within that exists within the the engineering organization so reliability engineering is viewed as a first class thing that they do they 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 invest effort into reliability engineering they define what that means it's got sponsorship from very senior people who talk about why it's important it, it comes into performance reviews when engineers are being reviewed getting a rating every every year and you know getting their compensation adjusted based on this their contributions to reliability are recognized and valued. That's a fairly recent change in Meta, and it's it's one that recognizes that actually, you know, it's not enough to just build fast. We need to build things that uh, are reliable. So, and I think one other kind of thing I want to say just on this topic around, you know, designing for quality is one thing that's super hard to do with, with companies that are growing fast when there are lots of new engineers joining all the time. It's very hard to propagate the culture and the way you, you think about quality and reliability because some some companies are better than others but certainly in one of the two companies that we're talking about here um I, I definitely noticed that it was the case that sometimes there was an expectation that new people would join and they would just learn by osmosis from their team about how to do the right thing and that often failed they often didn't and yes there were you know boot camps and, and training and and uh, you know, best practices uh, that were shared, 
but uh, there was a cultural dilution in terms of how to go about doing this well. And that is something that I think can be a real enemy to building quality software. I definitely saw that. And, uh, you know, there, within one organization, some teams will be doing a great job of building great software. And you, they would typically have a few people in the team who are standard bearers for how to build good software. They were the people when they're doing code reviews, you really listen to what the feedback they're giving you because they were the ones who uh, would not just give you feedback on how to write idiomatic Python or whatever it is you're writing, but also would give you feedback about how to think defensively about the code that you're writing because you know they were the ones that were maybe awake at three o'clock in the morning trying to troubleshoot something like this five years ago and they know you're going to be in the same situation when you are supporting your own code in production. So the, the, that reliance on these people um, is, is important. So I think companies then try to figure out how to how to bottle that institutional knowledge and 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 then turn that into best practice through things like the reliability engineering program that I mentioned. And actually, there is one other thing I wanted to talk about on this topic, which is ownership, because this this is really tied up with quality. And one theme that's common to both Meta and Amazon is a very strong sense of ownership around the the software that you build. They both use a sort of a DevOps model, I suppose you would call it, um, where the software you build, you you own it from inception of the idea through thinking about the architecture and design of that, through building it and testing it and deploying it and then running it in production. If something breaks in the middle of the night, you're the one that whose phone will go deep and you will be the one that will get up and try and mitigate the problem. You know, you're not going to depend on your on-call team or your ops team to do that. And actually, that's a good model because it means you are incented to build software that works and that doesn't wake you up. So as an engineer, how can I write some software that's not going to make my phone go beep in the middle of the night? It becomes a driving factor for you. And that's good for you. And it's good for the company because you're going to build better, more reliable software. So this cu culture of ownership is very common uh, across those kinds of companies. There are differences in the ownership models, though, you know, like, and I'm not, neither of these models is better than the other, but certainly within Amazon, it would be normal to, you would own your software to the extent that other people couldn't really change your software, uh, or it was quite difficult for them to do it. You would put your arms around it and protect it like it was your baby, and would be maybe defensive about it and protective of it, uh, which, you know, leads to good ownership and strong control over changes that are made. In Meta, it's a very different culture. In Meta, your code is in the repository. People are free to make changes. If somebody changes your code, you say thank you, and you make sure they've tested it properly. You do the code reviews for them, but that's somebody that's willing to help you to uh, to make your your product better. So that that's a different cultural kind of a approach. Is it better? I mean, you know, it's different. It it, it definitely leads to a lot more collaboration in a lot of ways, but maybe at the expense of a little dilution of control around quality. So you know, these are these are trade offs. Yeah, so those are that's, those are some of the things. I'd be interested to know who gets the phone call in the middle of the night in that kind of a situation. In the in the situation where uh, yeah, the, well, so ultimately it's still the it's that's a great question. It's still the, the there is still an owner for the the service. So if if somebody is contributing to your service, you still own the service. Uh, you're, you're it's still going to be your phone that goes beep. So it's in your interest to make have a good code yeah, review. Yeah, yeah okay. you'll need to do a good code review. You'll need to make sure they've tested it, things, and you, you know you you can be you can. Yeah, put a high barrier to the, to code getting into your code base for sure, and people will do that. Actually, there's a there's an interesting side or spin off from from that culture as well, which is things 
are owned until they're not in that kind of a culture. Sometimes like it's much more common in that model to have people come together and collaborate and build software, which the ownership becomes fuzzy over time because there are so many collaborators from across different teams. Well, who owns this? Well, you know, it was written by Mary five years ago, but she's no longer at the company and nobody else really knows how it works, but all these people contributed and that team has been reorged somewhere else anyway. So you end up with these unowned software components, which are actually perhaps super critical to the business. And that's a real problem for companies like that as well to, to understand how to, okay, how do we support this properly? Uh, what does community ownership mean? Uh, community ownership means often unowned. Uh, and that, that's something that companies struggle with to try and uh, adapt to that. You, you touched on it a little bit earlier, talking about your own team avoiding circular dependency. And you talked about architectural rigor from the, in the sense of, of code quality. But when you have companies like Amazon or Meta being you know, in the public, billions of users, if it goes down, we all go to Messenger to tell everyone Facebook's down and then we realize, oh wait, Messenger's down too. How does that influence, how does the potential for outages influence your code design, your changing and your, your testing of the software? Yeah, uh, it, a lot. And it affects it sort of over time, I suppose. So in that, well, for starters, at that scale, because of the scale, you you know that the edge cases will happen for sure. Like Meta has billions of users every day. Uh, AWS uh, is probably up there in the billions as well when you look at all the, the, the users of things that are built on AWS. Um, so you know that there is some esoteric thing that's going to happen that will trigger that edge case that you didn't think about. So, so that's one mindset thing you need to bake in to the way you approach building software and therefore the way you approach uh, testing it and the rigor that you bring to, to designing for quality. The other kind of thing that's in the DNA of these companies is trying to avoid disasters because, you know, you can be very, you can build great software and, and build great technology stacks, but then one disaster can be very reputationally expensive for the company. One massive AWS outage, as you say, you know, they end up in the news and um, uh, same with Meta, you know, if Facebook is down or Instagram is down, that's like that's suddenly like top two or three story in the news weirdly but th that's the way it is and you know if 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 the outage is bad enough it can be it can be reputationally damaging and we've all seen say for example security incidents over the years where you know customer data is compromised not within amazon and meta uh, but in other companies you know there was a famous sony hack of years ago those kinds of things are super super damaging can you imagine if for example you know amazon people generally trust their credit card information with amazon and having worked there, I, I do too, <laughs> just to be clear. But, um, you know, if there was some sort of a hack and, and all that data was lost, that would be so damaging to the brand of Amazon in terms of trust. So avoiding disaster is, is really important. And, and there's a ton of kind of rigor around, around um, thinking about that. So the way that this happens in practice, uh, incident review, the incident review culture is huge. And actually, it's not considered to be just an operational thing or, you know, a support thing. It's something that's baked into the way software teams operate. So in both companies, there is a, a rigor around reviewing operational incidents. So if you have, if you own a software product and something goes wrong and there's an outage, then you will be expected to analyze that outage and write up uh, you know, a, a report. In the case of Amazon, it's called a COE, which is, a, I think it stands for correction of errors. And in the case of, um, Meta, it's called a SEV review. SEV means a high severity incident. 
And there's a discipline that goes into that where you, you write up like what happened. Like for example, they've kind of moved away from this, but Amazon used to use the five whys methodology for, for uh, COEs where you say what happened, you know, there was an outage, well, why? And you say what the proximate thing was that caused the outage, and then, well, why did that happen? And you keep asking why until there are no more whys to ask. The, the mantra was that it would take about five to get to root cause. Actually, it usually took a lot more. But if you keep on asking why, uh, eventually you will deeply understand what happened and why it happened, uh, both from a technical perspective, but just as importantly, from an organizational perspective. And that will inform you about how to make your software stronger and better. What's important in that kind of a, an approach is that you have a no-blame culture, and both companies have done this very well. So if you're an engineer that broke something, then you know you brought down the site. And I, you know, I personally know lots of people who have brought down uh, Facebook and Amazon, and you know they were they're really valued engineers who continue to work there to this day. Mistakes happen. You know, arguably, if somebody makes a mistake and it brings down the site, well, it shouldn't have been possible to do that. Why was it possible to do that? Uh, what can we learn to, to, to make that be uh, either impossible or much less likely? So this no-blame culture, both companies have this, these reviews where they go into, you know, where the person with the most knowledge speaks about the incident and um, they're not blamed. They, they feel that they can be open and uh, they will basically get support from the community and ideas for how to make their, their thing better. And that's really a, a essential part of the DNA for, for, for this. In the case of AWS, I sort of went through a journey thinking, thinking these meetings were, they were so expensive. They're, these AWS ops meetings, had, like all the, the AWS teams were there, you know, representatives from all of these teams, typically you know, senior engineers and managers, to be literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in this meeting. It just felt like, this is not a good use of the company's time, but I kind of came to appreciate them. They were, they were well attended by, like Andy Jassy, who at the time ran AWS, he's now the CEO of Amazon. He would always be there, you know, sitting at the back, listening to what was being said and asking questions. And, and you could tell that this was something the company cared about. Like, you know, how do we make this stuff better and stronger? And the rigor that came from doing that um, was, was, was huge. And it actually pervaded the, like I say, it's not just about ops it's about how do we build uh, better software so that's that's definitely a part of the the dna the other thing that's common in terms of outages is or the other kind of side effect of all of that is um code freezes interestingly enough so com these companies do code freezes even though with continuous integration continuous deployment continuous tests right in theory you shouldn't need to you should just be able to check in a change and it flows through your pipelines and everything is tested and it doesn't get into production until or unless you're 100% sure that it's clean and it, it won't cause a problem. And that's true, but the the white heat of production outages will teach you that it's not always true. So if you're Amazon, then you probably shouldn't make changes and increase the entropy in your systems on Black Friday when most of their money is made. If you're meta, you probably shouldn't do it on New Year's Eve when, uh, or Thanksgiving when you know people are busy, you know, sharing uh, uh, messages uh, with their with families, etc. And in general, both companies, you wouldn't make a change on a Friday. That's something that I mean, it's not forbidden, but um, you generally don't do it because guess what? It's going to go bang, and you're going to be working on it on a Saturday to try and fix it. So, so you know, that's an approach that's kind of. Um, fostered, I think, by, by experience with outages. Yeah.
That's interesting. It reminds me of the sort of disparaging view I would have had of uh, large-scale software development methodologies in telcos because they're designed to be slow, careful, deliberate. Um, and yet uh, when your core infrastructure uh, provider for the world, you need that level of, of, of control. Um, leading into the question of what development methodologies are typically used, do you see? Is it a one-size-fits-all? Um, what style of methodologies are present in the organizations of, of this sort of web scale? Yeah, well, so there, it isn't one-size-fits-all and there's no kind of top-down mandated way that you, you must do it, which again, uh, you know, sort of touched on this a few times, but this is part of the DNA of these companies. If you join a team in one of these companies, you own a problem and you're expected to go solve that problem. And the way you do it is mostly up to you. So you're not forced to use a particular methodology. Uh, in general, however, these companies are populated by people who are influenced by what the prevailing approach is in the industry and by people who've worked elsewhere. So in general, pretty much all teams will use some flavor of agile methodology uh, for their development. It's, you know, certainly in Amazon, in my experience, in the, the areas that I worked in, it was either Scrum or Kanban that, that they used. The, the, the teams with a more operational focus would use Kanban. Others would use Scrum. Uh, interestingly, when I joined Meta, I think this is changing a bit now, but when I joined Meta, um, culturally, it was it was sort of frowned upon to even, to, like it's felt that, it was felt that these methodologies went against the gulf, the move fast culture. So it was even difficult to say that you're using Scrum and to maybe persuade people to use it. But over time, uh, people adopted best practices. So I, I mean, I think, in both companies, there's a sort of a Frankenstein approach to, to taking the best bits of Agile that work uh, and using those. So that, that's what I've experienced in, in, in the case of both companies. In, like when I think about the teams that I've seen that work the best uh, from a software design perspective, the ones in, in my experience that um, were the most successful at building high quality software were the ones that did actually invest themselves in the uh, methodology. So, for example, teams that took the time to do proper detailed sprint planning up front and weren't afraid to actually spend time talking about, well, what are we going to build and why and how? what's that going to look like? How will we design it? Getting around a whiteboard and hashing that out to quite a good level of detail. Uh, I've, I've seen teams who would do that and I've seen teams who would frown at doing that because oh, that's a waste of time. Let's just jump in and build it. The ones who spent the time doing that often built more uh, often understood the problem more deeply before they solved it, uh, often therefore solved the right problem, and often built better quality software that didn't fail as much, and often had more predictable estimation methodologies because they understood at a decently granular level what it was they were going to build. But it's interesting that the companies generally didn't try and force teams to do that, but the, the successful ones um, kind of did. So. Uh, and a lot of this kind of is is tied up with the culture of the organizations as well, as I mentioned. It was actually, it was quite a, quite unusual in my experience in the parts of the, business, the businesses that I worked in to have dedicated product owners or dedicated scrum masters whose job that was. That's not something that I saw. There was somebody who might be nominated to do that, plus the, plus the rest of their job as well, or it might rotate, you know, the scrum master role might rotate. That was a common approach. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't something that was a first class role. Actually, while I'm talking about that, neither are software architects. Interestingly, so that's something which is pretty common in the industry. You know, the, a role as an architect, somebody who comes up with the architecture of a system, um, and then um, 
uh, that's implemented by engineers. That's generally culturally frowned upon in these companies, it, it, uh, notwithstanding what I mentioned earlier on about them starting to think about building coherent architectures. And there are people that do this role, but they still don't have the label of architect. I think culturally the view is that it's part of the ownership. You don't want an architect to come down from their ivory tower with a set of blueprints and then have the engineers go build it. You want engineers to come up with solutions to problems and build them and own the solution that they build. So uh, that's another example of a role that's less common in these companies. Uh, but yeah, methodology-wise, various sort of frank and agile is how I would describe it. So you say there's a, there's a lot of flexibility amongst the teams to decide how they organize themselves. To, to what extent do the teams have the choice of programming languages or platforms on which to build the software that they have to build? Um, they, they have a lot of freedom, but it's a certain kind of freedom. Um, the, so again, as I mentioned earlier, <clears throat> teams are free to, are expected to solve a problem and deliver results for the problem domain that they're in. Um, and you can, you, you know, you can pick the right technologies, the right programming languages, the right libraries, platforms, services, whatever you want to use, uh, you can pretty much use it within reason. Uh, there are some constraints on this because if it's an open source system you want to use, depending on the nature of the license, you need to be careful around derivative works and who owns those. And different companies have different rules around that. But for example, with programming language choice, you get a lot of freedom to choose the programming language. But the freedom is somewhat constrained because it, within these big companies, there are you know, lots and lots and lots and lots of teams that are responsible for building developer infrastructure to support you as a developer. So there are teams building you know, continuous integration tooling, uh, IDEs. Uh, testing frameworks, you know, all of this stuff that you need to, um, a, a lot of, a surprising amount of which is not off the shelf actually, that they invest a lot in building these, mostly because, again, because of the scale. Um, but if you want to, if you want to go and pick some wacky language to use, you, you can do that, but the chances are you won't have the language bindings for the thing that you, uh, that you depend on from the developer infrastructure support team. So it becomes easier to choose one of a constrained set of languages to, to choose because you're going to get free integration with you know the, the RPC package that everybody else is using, let's say Thrift in the case of Meta, uh, or you're going to get um, it's going to be super easy to use you know the standard storage system because there are language bindings for that, uh, etc. So therefore, the, the those con that kind of constrains your choices. The other the other thing that teams think less about, but it's actually also important when you're choosing your language is how broadly is that language known within the company? Uh, because again, going back to the you know your phone going beep in the middle of the night, if there's an outage and you want, you're trying to fix it, and uh, you, you know you want help, you need to call people in to help you debug the thing that you built. You want people that actually can program in the language you chose. Uh, so the more people there are that understand how to build things in that language, the better. So in the case of, for example, in Meta, Within the infrastructure organization, uh, Python is, the, is probably still the most prevalent language. C++ uh, is up there as well. Uh, increasingly, there's a lot of Rust over the last couple of years, and more Go as well is being is being used. But you know, it it, it can be slow for companies to embrace these uh, newer languages, and you get, you still get the religious language wars that happen. Uh, they happen internally in companies as well. And like, for example, 
the, the, some languages will have a lot of community support where engineers will basically try and do, build their own language bindings for their favorite language to make everything work. Uh, and then trying to trying to convert that into something that's officially blessed by the company is an, is an ongoing battle. And there's several examples of that. And uh, one of the biggest, probably the biggest um, discussion that happens in the last few years, certainly that I've seen in the case of Meta would be around, you know, the use of interpreted languages versus compiled languages, because if you're not using strict typing and you're 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 using Python, you you will have outages that could be caught by a compiler, but they won't. They'll be caught by your customers when Instagram stops working, for example. So the, there's definitely a move more towards typed languages. So there's constrained freedom is how I would summarize that. Okay, so we're going to open it up for questions. Hello, I'm Liam. Um, so right at the beginning, you mentioned that Meta is more of an engineer-driven um, company, whereas AWS is more top-down approach. Um, what did you find the advantages of the different approaches were and the disadvantages? So, by the way, I, I should say that's that's a drastic simplification. What I said is is obviously you know that's a simplification, but it, it's it's roughly true, and I would defend this against anybody who kind of told me I'm wrong. But um, I think the advantages and disadvantages. Let's see. So we, so speaking as a manager in a, in Amazon, I, I often found that it was the case that I needed to try and maybe coax and persuade engineering teams to stop doing the thing they were doing and go and do the thing that I thought was much more important because that was where the business, what the business needed them to do. And I would need to have a conversation where I'd say, well, actually the outcome we need is this, and maybe we should stop you know, polishing the thing that we built before uh, because it's good enough and move on to this other thing. You know, there was the saying was, you know, um, perfect is the enemy of, well, actually, good, the good, yeah, that's it, thanks, Alan. Um, and like definitely you would you would end up trying to maybe persuade teams like stop working on that now it's good enough it does what we needed to do let's move on and like weirdly with the engineering driven culture in meta that wasn't something that that happened as much and i think it worked because the company was set up to think a lot about the impact of what they were doing so everybody not just the managers but also the engineers thought about how impactful the project that they were working on was and they were incented to deliver impact. So, by which I mean, basically, when you had your performance review, what did you do? It's not just enough to say, I, I built all this stuff. Well, okay, so what? What was, what was the impact of that? Why, why is that important? And if you can measure that, then so much the better. So there's an incentive there to deliver impact because it, it's you know in your team's interest, in your personal interest to do that. So that allows an engineering-driven culture because you, you can then, you know, I'm going to say it, you can trust the engineers to make good decisions. And that's the way it should be because engineers are smart people. And these companies hire high bar smart people for a reason. They want them to make decisions. So it sometimes can be an anti-pattern that, you know, you're hiring smart people and then telling them what to do. Uh, really, you need to align their incentives. And I think Med have done a pretty good job at that. So that's one observation. I guess if the flip side of that, though, is it can be harder to have without some level of top-down control, it can be harder to steer the overall ship. And Meta kind of, Meta would have had initiatives where they needed to do that. So for example, you know, in my time there, they've moved more towards an infrastructure as a service model. When I joined, I was quite surprised that how common it was for service owners to own, in inverted commas, their, their servers, and they would run on servers and they could control what version of the operating system ran on those servers. What what kernel what you know what switches etc on there, 
as opposed to a model where you're just you know using EC2 compute capacity, you know vanilla standard images. So over time, in order to scale, Meta needed to move more towards an infrastructure as a service model where they would disintermediate the service ownership from the underlying infrastructure. And that's not an easy change to make in a huge company. So in order to do that, you can't just rely on teams to do the right thing. You need to have some kind of top-down approach. And that's when that's when the other model, when it's it's more natural to have the other approach. Uh, Meta squared that circle in, in a interesting way. They, you know, they first of all, you know, made sure that the infrastructure as a service program had, you know, lots of kind of uh, executive buy-in and sponsorship and people talked about why it was important. And then they got some very smart engineers who were well trusted uh, to kind of evangelize it and, and travel around and talk to teams and explain why, why it's important. And then they basically did something which was unusual for Meta, which is they, they built design docs up front, really detailed ones, and they, they talked to people about them and they figured out, okay, how are we going to actually design our infrastructure? Uh, and this is, I mean infrastructure in the broadest sense. How are we actually going to design our data centers, our network, all the systems that run in that in a way that works with infrastructure as a service and then start engineering towards that. But that, that was an effort of, of organizational will to do that because that's not the way that Meta organized. So, so I guess Amazon has an advantage in that regard. So those are some pros and cons, good question. That's very interesting, kind of relates. Early on you said you don't get to build beautiful architecture, um, but I think as the organizations have matured, they have had that opportunity to a greater extent, I think, yes, yeah. Yeah, it's still, there's still that tension between doing that versus going quickly. You know, that, that, there's always a tension. But uh, increasingly, I've, I've seen the value of larger scale, uh, thoughtful architectural uh, work and design being valued more. Uh, hi, uh, you mentioned a bit on COEs. In general, did teams fear getting COEs? And did you ever... Were you ever involved in writing a COE for something you or your team were responsible for? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, did they fear getting COEs? Um, sort of, but not maybe not in the sense that you mean. Like they, they didn't fear that they were going to get into trouble. Um, you'd fear it in the sense that getting a COE means that the software that you've been building has failed in some way and you're going to have to stop working on what you're working on and go and write the COE and understand it. And so, you know, it could take time out of your actual, what you were expecting to do that particular week. Um, and then you'd go along to the, to the review meeting. You know, not everybody loves having to do that because, you know, you're going to speak in front of a bunch of your peers, maybe in a forum like we're in here with a group of people in the room. Um, the people that were chosen to do that would be people who'd be comfortable doing it typically. But so there's some fear because, you know, you, you, you feel like you're opening the kimono a little bit on, on what happened in your team. But it wasn't fear in the, oh no, we're, we're, for, the, we're for the high jump here. It wasn't that kind of a fear. Um, yes, I, I was involved in lots of COEs um, and for the teams that I managed over the years um, and also and, and found, like, found, them very, found them very valuable and instructive. And actually for me, the things that I learned from doing them would be like in the, my early days of doing them, you would write a COE which kind of went really deep on your specific problem that you saw and you'd understand it and you'd be able to talk about why it happened at the, at the very root. But then I'd be blindsided by a question which seemed obvious in hindsight, which was, okay, well, you've understood this thing that's happened in your software, 
But is there somewhere else within the Amazon or Meta infrastructure where that same landmine might be lurking that other people might trip over? Have you gone to check that? I'm like, oh, well, that's a great question. No, I haven't. Uh, but of course, I should have. Um, and so it changes the way you think about outages and ownership. So if you find something you think, oh, I've done this thing and it, it's caused by this maybe esoteric issue or race condition that exists in this bit of software that I that I use. Well, who else is using that bit of software? Do they know about this? Go and talk to them. Uh, so it kind of raises the bar for everybody to, 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 to start thinking about that. So I, I kind of learned to, I had a love-hate relationship with COEs and, and uh, the experience of going through that. I found that the teams that I that I managed to end up building much better software over the years as a result of them. But, you know, it's definitely, it, it could be painful at the, at the time. How do you take the emotion out of it? Try to be as objective as possible? Yeah, they're definitely very much focused on the facts and on the, the data that go along with that. They don't, like the CUE doesn't talk about if an engineer did something and that might have triggered something. It doesn't name the engineer, for example. That's not important to what happened. And I mean, even it just it's simple things like the tone is often set by whoever's leading these conversations. If somebody comes up with a COE that's well written, you thank them for their time in writing it. You acknowledge, you know, the, the complexity of, of what happened and you just treat them like a human who's there to help make this stuff better. And we're all collaborating together. I remember my first one actually in Meta. I was curious to see how they did them, having seen them in, in Amazon. Um, and I happened to be in California um, at the time. This is my first month or so in the company. And I hadn't met the team in Dublin yet, uh, but there was a, a, a SEV review, which was reviewing an incident that uh, was related to some software that a team in Dublin owned. And uh, so the person, the engineer in Dublin, who was going to be, this was on a Friday evening. It happened to be scheduled on a Friday evening about six o'clock. Sounds familiar. That's where we are now, roughly. And the 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 person that was doing the server review uh, was dialing in. Uh, I attended in California. I expected this was going to be like quite a formal meeting, or you know, like you say, something that's quite edgy, maybe for the for the engineer. But it wasn't at all. The engineer shows up. Uh, they had a beer uh, on the the desk in front of them. Uh, the person who was driving the meeting was a very senior vice president in Meta. He said hi to the person by name. He knew him. How's it going? Good to see you. Having a chat. Um, and then did a very diligent review of the incident. The engineer was comfortable and relaxed. Uh, uh, maybe the beer helped. Uh, but the, 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 um, there was a sort of a feeling, I suppose, of mutual respect there that it doesn't just come from techniques within the meetings. I think it comes from the, the overall culture in, in the organization. Yeah, and that culture can... It's a it's a balancing act to keep it um, productive and focused on results. Where totally, yeah. And in fact, often there would be there would be sort of champions of the process and of the culture in in the room who would, if people were straying into what seemed like something not constructive, they would they would be called on that, and they would say, "Well, actually, hold on, you know, let's pull this back to the um, to, to the the focus." Hi, I'm Pratik. Um, so. Uh, Briefly, remember you saying that when you uh, interview candidates, like they uh, they don't know the the layer behind the uh, main uh, layer of action, like networking concepts or operating system con concepts. I'm from the new gen, new gen kind of the soft dev, dev, dev uh, history, and I can know that the culture is being like spec driven, job spec driven, like you know fancy UIs and JavaScript frameworks. I remember on caricature, like there's a queue in front of you know 
written like all the Vue.js, React.js, and, and there was a book, Introduction to Algorithms by CLRS, that hardly anyone. So that's the culture uh, being. I cannot blame them because because it's the bar has, as you said, bar has been uh, raised up to get into a good company. So you need to do your lead co fair share of lead code. But how do we do that? How, uh, can you comment on it? Like, is, do we need to like, I understand, like we need to understand from first principles some concepts. Yeah, that's a great observation and question. I think, um, yeah, I, maybe I was, I might have been a little bit sort of disparaging and flippant in the remark I made, but like, I guess the the observation is that for the kind of people that we want, so the, the jobs that I was doing, we were underneath, we were inside the cloud trying to build it. Now, there are lots and lots and lots and lots of jobs. Most of the jobs, in fact, are of the second type where companies are moving, for example, on-premises software into the cloud. And they absolutely need people who can do that and expertise around doing that. So that's the first thing to say. And you're right, that's driven by demand for sure. But in my opinion, as a software engineer, it's important for you to understand certain basic concepts. It, like the, the core concepts around algorithms and you know, the, the fundamental principles of computer science. Like, I mean, I've been doing this since uh, 1990. That's a long time. And it, everything's changed, but nothing has changed really as well. I mean, it, the, the concepts are all really still the same, just kind of repackaged differently. Uh, the, soft, the names of the software packages are all different, but really the core concepts have not changed radically. Um, and also, I mean, myself and Alan were chatting just before this, actually one specific example of this. Um, uh, there's, there's a team... Uh, within um, Meta in Dublin that's responsible for DNS and uh, NTP or you know, time synchronization protocol. And the, like DNS is a very old protocol. NTP is like 30 plus years old, more. Um, and they, they work, they're fine. But even doing something like, for example, running a DNS infrastructure at the scale that a company like Meta or Amazon needs to run it with literally billions of users anywhere in the globe, uh, with data centers all around the globe, with you know, crammed with racks of servers, maybe f say 40 servers per rack. In each server, there might be hundreds and hundreds of uh, containers which spin up ephemerally and they have an IP and a domain name and then they go away again and that happens quickly. DNS is not really uh, historically designed for that level of rapid change. So, so building a DNS system that works in that kind of a world, even that's a really hard problem. So to do that... Well, A, it's really interesting, but it's not something that a lot of people think about because uh, DNS, yeah, grand, that, that's that's a solved problem. Some people in the past solved that for me. I can move on to other things. But uh, it very much depends on which part of the business you're working in uh, or which part of the industry. Um, but I, I definitely would contend that understanding algorithms, understanding problem solving, th those are basic things that are always helpful in your career. Just to follow up on that, out of interest, so UCD, the undergrad course now, has a data science stream. With the huge focus on data science, machine learning, AI, that kind of stuff, could you see a gap opening up in the market in five to ten years where we're going to have a lack of those kind of low-level computer science software developers because we have so many data scientists coming out of colleges now? Um, I, maybe. I don't know. That's a good question. It's not something I've thought about. I mean, I suppose there's maybe a broader question about the extent to which, you know, it, industry drives academic research and vice versa and whether it should or not i mean i know you know i know that that's a, that's a whole topic which is probably the subject of a whole podcast in itself um I, in my experience of that has been that over the years um universities uh, to some extent have lagged in terms of 
teaching the skills that me as a hiring manager found uh, useful to hire into these companies. Uh, they do catch up, but they tend to lag. I know, for example, Stripe have done a bunch of work with the University of Limerick to kind of shape their program towards industry. I don't think I don't think industry should be the be all and end all, obviously, for academic work. That's not the way it should work. But at the same time, as a hiring manager into teams in Ireland, um, you know, I didn't hire as many Irish graduates as I would have liked to. Um, a lot of the people that I hired were from from other universities outside of Ireland. It would have been really nice as a an Irish person to see more people coming from Irish universities. Hi, uh, I'm Charmin. Uh, I have actually two questions. So the first one is, uh, I'd like to know how often these uh, engineering teams in different companies uh, deploy their codes, for, uh, for example, for the prod servers. And I'd like to know out of curiosity for for how, how much of a duration these teams boil their code in a dev server uh, and how that transition, like what are the matrices that they uh, go through to convince themselves that uh, Okay, now it's ready to go to the prod server. So yeah, that's the first question. Okay, so how often do do they d- deploy to production, and how do they satisfy themselves I, that it's yeah, ready? Yeah, how yeah. They, basically okay. how they convince themselves. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah, good question. So the how often piece. Um, I mean, I think that's kind of a little bit uh, proprietary as far as I know. I don't think they necessarily kind of disclose that, but I could say though that it like regularly. Um, it like they definitely do have continuous. Uh, deployment capabilities and they both both those companies have internal tooling um, that um, you know when you check something in it, there are pipelines that it can go through and, and um, ensure that the appropriate testing is done at each phase to make sure initially well obviously that something is unit tested initially but then that it's that there are appropriate uh, tests done uh, at each level of granularity to ensure that um that the thing is going to work as expected, and then at the end, that the change will just flow into production, usually automatically. Like certainly, more mature teams um, would have built checks, automated checks, based on tests, which will, um, if everything is green, then they will just flow through to production. So, and that would happen, you know, very smoothly and 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 all the time. How, how, uh, how they satisfy themselves that things are good. It's difficult to give a, a kind of a very generic answer on that, but it, it depends on the individual software and team. But the emphasis comes from building uh, tooling, developer infrastructure tooling that allows the teams to build automation around testing primarily. So uh, if you're building a piece of software, it's up to you to know how do you know if your software is good or not? What does good really mean? Not just individually good in, in the specific piece of code that you wrote and the algorithm works. Given some inputs, you get the outputs you expect. Like that's table stakes and you expect that. But what happens if you deploy that software you know, at scale? Uh, what happens if you need to scale it up, scale it down? What, what happens if it, if it fails? All of these, you know, what, what, from a security perspective, is it as, it, as, it's, as is expected? All of those uh, non-functional requirements are also important to test for. And as a team, you will need to um, build checks that can automatically satisfy yourself that that is the case and that that, that will ungate the software to be deployed. Typically, teams that are not, maybe that are, um, I don't want to say less mature as a team, but if the software is younger and is at a certain stage in its lifecycle, you will often have manual gates at the end. So you'll go through all the flow, but a human will need to actually do the final check and say, yes, this is good, and they'll 
stamping and it will get into production. That that's a pretty common phase to go through until you satisfy yourself that um, that your automatic checks are sufficiently strong. So uh, so this one is I guess uh, I don't know. Uh, so so the uh, I would like out of curiosity I want to know uh, how soon uh, like the team lead expect a new grad of uh, someone who joins the team fresh to understand the code base. Yes, that's a good question Because, uh, as well. He, I think the idea is like he has to bring the value as soon as possible, but that also depends on uh, how much of code that the new new person understands. So from a from a team lead's perspective, how soon they expect the new person to go to familiar with the code base and everything. Yeah, so the question is for a new grad joining a company, how quickly should they be expected to understand the code base and be productive? It depends as with anything. Um so I suppose the first thing to say is that a lot of these companies have reasonably mature training and bootcamp processes about that are aimed at getting people up to speed uh, and getting them familiar with with uh, with the code base. So, for example, in the case of Meta, they have a bootcamp which lasts about five to six weeks. Uh, you join that, and within your first week, you're making production changes to Meta systems, which is kind of both frightening and cool in equal measure. And you, you, you basically, that's all about initially teaching you about the ecosystem of services because when you go in there, you, you know, there will be stuff you'll be familiar with, but mostly the systems, the actual systems you use will not be the same ones you're familiar with from before your time there. So, so there is an expectation it's going to take you time to learn the ecosystem and infrastructure. So that's, a, that's recognized. And then after that five or six weeks, you then would spend time sitting with different teams Meta has an interesting approach to this. They, when you join, there, there are some exceptions, but 95% of the time when you join as an engineer, you choose the team that you're going to join. And you, you shortlist it maybe to three teams at the end of bootcamp. You spend a week with each. You see, do you like the technology? Do you like the people? Do you like the manager? That's, that's very important. And uh, do you think you can learn something? Do you think you'd make an impact? That's also very important. And then you choose a team to join. So, so now you're up to whatever, uh, nine weeks or something by the time you've sat with the team. Then you would definitely, you know, for the first few months, you're, you're very much in learning mode with that team, getting up to speed. You would have a mentor who will help you learn. Uh, you would be expected to gradually start making changes to uh, small, well-scoped uh, changes to, to the systems. And then over time, that broadens in scope. So typically, the way I think about this as a manager is, Somebody who's coming in as a new grad will be able to, their scope of influence will be themselves. They need to be able to influence what they're doing and do it well. As they get more senior, their scope of influence becomes other people on the team, the team itself. And then the work that they're doing is influential across multiple teams, et cetera, and the org. They, new grads need to be able to take well-scoped tasks of, of simple to modest complexity and execute those. As you become more skilled, uh, you will take Uh, complex tasks and then you will take systems components uh, eventually you'll move up towards vaguely articulated problems you're like okay i don't really understand what that problem means but I, i'll have a go at solving it and that's that's the journey you go on as you develop as an engineer none of which puts a number on it in terms of which is i think what you're looking for how long before you're expected to know the code base it depends on the code base depends how complex it is it depends on the team But you would certainly be expected to be making impact from you know during the first six months. You would you would certainly be expected to shipping to be shipping changes to your code base and gradually increasing your level of self sufficiency and autonomy uh, and starting to unblock yourself. Does that cover it? Yeah, cool.
Good question. Though. And I imagine over time we can drift through the organization, or not drift, but direct ourselves to other parts. So what sort of lengths of stay would be normal? Yeah, that's a good question too. So I, I think um, you would... If you join a team, generally speaking, you'd be expected to stay for a year, at least maybe 18 months, because the team is investing time in getting you up to speed and teaching you and, and taking you under their wing. So, you know, usually there's an expectation that you pay that back by being useful um, and put in a, a shift of a year. Um, and, you know, sometimes that's codified in policies where the company has a policy that if you join a team, you need to stay there for a year. That's the case in Meta, for example, I think. Uh, but then after that, you're free to move to a different team. Um, and in fact, some companies are better than others at this, but like it's pretty common to have, most companies will encourage flexibility and movement. Um, so like, for example, again, speaking about Meta, they do um, they have this concept of, of hack-a-months. Let's say you've been in a team for a couple of years, you want to do something different, you can do a hack-a-month with another team. Uh, so teams will publish a hack-a-month project. It's usually a, a project that'll take you a month to do. And you can do this either just to do something different for a while and help out another another team just, just for that and to share knowledge in both directions. Or you can do it with a view to, you know, trying out that team and seeing if that's a team that you would like to join, which is a nice idea too. And I, this is really driven by a recognition by companies like this. I know tech is, is going through a downturn, but ultimately that's still a full employment industry. So if people are in a team that they don't enjoy doing a job they don't want, they can leave. So why not let them leave internally, keep them in the company after investing in hiring them and let them leave and go and work on something else in your in your company. So most companies will encourage that kind of mobility. And, uh, you know, as a manager, it can be difficult because you've invested in growing somebody and then they, they move on. But it definitely pays back in the long term and you get this cross pollination of ideas and learning that's super valuable. To, to go back to the test, the question about testing, I heard Mark Harmon last year talking about uh, simulation-based testing and mutation testing. For your individual teams, are there specific metrics that you have to meet in terms of, say, testing code coverage or static kind of metrics that you're meeting, uh, complexity and stuff like that? Or is that totally up to the team and how well-tested their own software is? It's up to the team, yeah. And um, and uh, you, you see the whole spectrum of approaches to this. There are teams that think test coverage metrics are nonsense and don't tell me anything about the quality of my software. And then there are teams who hold a rigorous, you know, it must be 90x percent tested or else your change isn't going to get checked into the repository. And often that dep just depends on, I, I don't think cor the corporations take a view on what's the right way there. It'll often depend on the experience that the teams have, especially maybe influential senior people within the team and their, in their industry experience prior to this. And it can also depend on the nature of the software. Some Some software types are probably more uh, amenable to code coverage, testing, adding value, others maybe less so. But no, there's a real spectrum there. Yeah, I'm uh, Evan. I was wondering kind of like, what's the friction like with uh, adaptation of new technologies? Like for example, um, a lot of companies uh, migrating to like um, SPA like uh, frameworks for their web apps like React or like more recently, like uh, a lot of companies started using TypeScript. And I was wondering like, what kind of challenges does that face? And, and like, what's the sort of like, lag period between these technologies becoming available and um, companies starting to use them? Yeah, that's a good question. It, again, that's going to be hard to give a sort of a one-size-fits-all answer to. But I think in general, generally speaking, so like some observations I have about that is that, like if you think about the incentives 
that exists for the company. That's really usually what it boils down to. That so on the one hand, they're they're not incented to move to a new technology for the sake of it, right? So it, there needs to be some reason. There needs to be value for the customer or for efficiency or for reducing cost, etc. You know, moving to TypeScript, I believe I think I read somewhere that Stripe moved to TypeScript, for example, and you know, presumably had a lot of investment in in that that didn't necessarily result in feature benefit for customers, but would have given a lot of type safety and a lot of uh, quality benefit to, to them going forward as they go into the next phase of scaling. So companies generally will recognize the value that comes from uh, using the latest technology, but not for the sake of it. It needs to be something that adds value. Um, and that plays out in the language side of things as well. You know, often engineers will want to use the latest language because, you know, it's definitely the best for the following, you know, 10 reasons that I've carefully researched and thought through. But, uh, okay, great, but so what? Like, how does that actually help the company? So that's a, that's a conversation that happens. And then I suppose different companies have a different appetite for being early adopters to new things too. So if you're an early adopter to something at the scale of Meta and Amazon, what you're basically signing up to do is making it better um, because you're going to test it in ways that, that, that nobody else has probably. So uh, you, you, you need to be mindful of, of that. So if it's an open source thing, then you're, you're basically recognizing the fact that not only are we going to adopt this technology for the benefit of us and our customers, but actually we're going to have to make this technology better because we're going to find lots of bugs and we're going to have to invest in fixing them as we go. So that's a sort of a, a calculation that you need to make as well. Uh, are there any other considerations there? Um, I suppose the other th observation I would have there is that w certainly within, I mean, I think as an, as an engineer within these companies, a lot of the problems that, a lot of the, the, the technology you use was often developed there at those companies because it's just, um, it, the software just doesn't scale. Like the scale is just insane. It's crazy how, how uh, well these systems need to scale. So I mentioned at the very start in the intro that network monitoring was one of the areas I was responsible for in Amazon. So, I mean, I can't share proprietary information about the size of the network, but it's it's enormous and ma uh, massively distributed in terms of the number of uh, network devices, the number of interfaces on those devices, the frequency at which you need to pull those interfaces is generally much faster than what is normal in the industry the sheer volume of data that you gather and need to store and then once you've got that data the appetite internally to go back and retrospect over that data and say remember that outage we had last year is there anything we can learn from that for example to help us predict network failures in the future they're, they're doing things that are just that the industry just hasn't done yet and often they lead the way in terms of um, uh, you know, being the first to solve problems and some companies then are pretty good at open sourcing that. Amazon less so. Amazon tends to keep the kind of the intellectual property close to its chest uh, after they build it. They maybe turn it into an AWS product if uh, if they want to do that. But um, yeah. So that I suppose where I'm getting at there is it, it can become maybe insular a little bit. The engineers work with this ecosystem of software but are maybe less exposed to some of the, the external things that are prevalent in the industry. Sometimes it takes engineers coming from outside to join the company to kind of raise the bar a little bit in terms of best practice that can happen as well. My name is Shaurya. So my question to you is, uh, what sort of practices can we follow on a re regular basis in order to develop better software that we can use? What kind of practices can you d follow to develop better software? 
on a regular basis. On a regular uh, basis. What are the things that... Oh, pet programming. No? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is that still cool anymore? I don't think that's cool anymore. No, I don't think so. When I joined Amazon, actually, uh, pair programming, well, XP, extreme programming was all the rage still. And, and uh, I was in Edinburgh and in that little branch of... Amazon that I was in, we we did use pair programming, and there were no code reviews. There was pair programming, which, but that that's kind of the last time I came across that. Uh, practices, yeah. Um, I, I'm not going to have any silver bullet answers here, but the kind of things that I value personally would be uh, rigorous code reviews, making sure that your code is well reviewed, and being open to feedback in your code is super important. Thinking about how to write clean idiomatic code and certainly within teams uh, you know high functioning teams would generally have a practice around that and they would have you know style guides or whatever that says this is how we're going to write code and uh, this you know we're going to hold ourselves to this to this bar and they would have you know linters etc that would enforce a lot of that stuff what else would i say about that i had another uh idea there that's popped out of my head um let's see code reviews Oh, I know what it was. It's come back to me. Uh, having a clear idea around, this isn't just coding specific, but a definition of done, which, you know, the phrase that comes from kind of agile methodologies. Um, that's, I think that's a good thing to keep in mind about um, when you're building software. How do you know when you're done? Like over the years, it was, it'd be common for me to talk to an engineer and say, how long is left on the thing you're building? And they would tell me a week. And I knew for sure it wasn't going to be a week um, because what they meant was it's going to take them a week to code to write that and think that it's ready but then maybe some testing would show that they had more to do then some integration testing with related bits of software they needed to integrate would show them oh actually we need to do this a little bit differently and then eventually they would have something that's tested and working and they wanted to put it into production but it, it, there was no way to know if it's working in production so that they hadn't instrumented it the logging is insufficient maybe the the dashboards don't exist the metrics the, the, sorry the alarms don't exist now maybe for the software you're building those things are not important but I think upfront writing down what does done mean for you so uh, having a definition of done where you don't just think of software as some code that you're writing but software as an entity an artifact that you build that's going to do something for somebody and and be clear on what def the definition of done is that for me is personally very important yeah those are the ones that occur to me. One last one. I'm going to be cheeky because I have the microphone. You were talking about good quality code reviews. Do you do you limit the size of the like pull requests, for example? Because you know there's a running joke: give me eight lines of code, I'll give you a page of criticisms. But if you give me two hundred, I'll just give you a green tick. Yeah, um, they're not limited, but certainly best practice would be to submit relatively small, bite-sized chunks of code for review. Like if somebody if somebody lands a thousand-line diff on a team for review, they'll get told that that's not okay like in no uncertain terms and they'll be told we're not going to review that therefore it's not getting into production go and break it into bite-sized chunks and we'll, we'll take a look at it then um but that that's that's not sort of forced by any kind of policy that's just people doing the right thing and then the other yeah the other anti-pattern you will see some people can be super critical and picky to an, an extent that isn't adding value however engineers that are submitting code for review can request who they want to review it. So the people who are being too picky, the organization might heal around them and they may find they're not getting requests. But then as a manager, I've had to deal with it a few times. Sometimes there are you know, senior engineers on a team who are perfectly within their rights to comment on the code and they may be just being a little bit over the top. And 
usually that's just a culture problem in the team and the team need to get together and talk about, okay, well, hold on, what are we trying to do here? What, what's, what, where is the bar? And the other thing about this, I suppose, that comes up from time to time is, you know, you, you would see engineers maybe who are struggling a bit, their code reviews tend to ping pong over and back an awful lot. And uh, that's usually a sign if they're, if that's happening with theirs, but not with others, then somebody else in the team would normally take them under their wing and say, look, really you need to kind of, um, you know, we shouldn't be having to point out these kinds of things to you again and again. So that, that they will help mentor and grow the engineer to make sure that they meet expectations there and the manager can get involved in helping that. Um, but yeah, that's, that's definitely an, an interesting area. But from a people point of view and from a technology point of view. Okay, I guess we'll wrap it up there. Thanks to Carl for sharing his knowledge and experience. If we can give him a pool of bus, a round of applause. Thank you for listening. The music used is Voltaic Fluctuations by Ben Prunty and used with his permission. 